Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. The Burden Which the Prophet Habakkuk Saw O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. Thank you. You can grab a seat if you haven't already. You know, we discussed last week that the inclusion of the book Habakkuk inside your Bible really serves as God's invitation to you to bring your questions and doubts and struggles to him. Because that's exactly what the prophet Habakkuk is doing here. We're calling our series, looking at this ancient prophet's little tiny book, just three chapters long. We're referring to it, we're referring to it, excuse me, our little series, as when God doesn't. And today we discuss when God doesn't do things our way or in our timing. And as we tackle this topic of when he doesn't do things in our way and in our timing, I want to do three things. I want to look at three things with you. First, the people's common question. And then God's astounding answer. But then I want to spend some time discussing for us the tension and choice that it leaves us with so often to find that God doesn't do things in the time or in the way that we had hoped. So if you begin with me just looking at the people's common question. You see, we usually think of a prophet as an individual who speaks to the people on behalf of God. But the prophet Habakkuk basically does the opposite of this. He flips it on its head because his role in this moment is to function almost like a figurehead or spokesman of the people and to bring their complaint and question to God, which is why I refer to this first section as the people's common question, because this was not isolated just to this ancient prophet. This was something that all of the nation is wrestling with in this moment. But he will function, the prophet will, as a spokesman and figurehead for us bringing the question to God and asking him, do you even see this and are you going to do anything about it? The people's common question. You remember, as I just said, Habakkuk, he represents the people, but the common question is really what you see laid out in those first couple of verses where he asks God, do you even see the injustice and wickedness that exists in society. And then he asks him, and when will you vindicate the righteous? When will you put an end to all of this? You see, although the question of injustice in our world, or even amongst God's people, is common, there is, however, an aspect of this question that's a bit uncommon when Habakkuk is asking it here. You see, the uniqueness of the the prophet's question and complaint that he brings to God is that he does not come in this moment complaining about injustice that's done by those or perpetrated by those who are the wicked outsiders outside the people and camp of God's people. 
You see, his complaint and issue that he brings about grave injustice and dehumanizing behavior that's being carried out, he brings that complaint saying that it's happening amongst the people of God themselves, that it's being committed by, they're being carried out by the people within the nation of Israel. He's seen these issues, this injustice amongst God's own people. And I bring that up because it's really easy And in a twisted sense, it even almost feels natural for us to take something like Habakkuk's complaint here and his book in general as an opportunity for us to gather as the safe insiders and rail on the world for ruining the good thing that us, the good people, are trying to do over here. But that's not the case in our story that's recorded for us by the ancient prophet. Look again at verse 2, where he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry up to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. He's saying, I'm seeing it right here. There is strife and contention arising. Therefore, the law, here's a massive clue for you. The law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Now think through this with me. It's not appalling that the law of God is not adhered to by people who are outside the house and family of God. Why would we ever be surprised or appalled by that? Because those who are outside the house and the family of God have never claimed to be following God or they would be counted inside it. So his complaint here is not that he's shocked that the people outside the camp of Israel are living this way so unjustly, unjustly, and that they're not obeying the law of God. He right here, the prophet, he's amazed and appalled. Scholars and commentators alike agree that he's appalled because the people of God are acting lawlessly and godlessly in the way that they're living and treating other people. And I think this is an important little thing to notice, that he's seeing this amongst his own countrymen. He's seeing this represented amongst his own people. It's important, I think, even I was reminded a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the topic of generosity. You might remember we looked at the story of Jesus observing the widow who gave her last two mites. And Jesus would commend her, but before he would commend her, right before that passage, we also read where Jesus warned about the religious leaders, and he warned that we should be very leery of the danger that they carried with them. Because the scribes, he said, the religious elite, had this superiority complex that led them to pride and to the dehumanization of other people around them. They ill-treated others around them that they deemed inferior to them. And it's something Jesus does throughout his life and ministry. Again and again, Jesus will reveal and warn of a danger that we who think of ourselves as the self-proclaimed good people that we, by definition, can actually become godless because we view ourselves as righteous and therefore as having no need of God. You see, Scripture is very clear that you and I, we all have an enemy, but maybe his goal isn't merely to make those that we'd classify as like morally neutral. Maybe his goal isn't just to make them bad. So much as his goal is to make those that we'd classify as morally upright He's looking to try to make them good in their own eyes, to make them self-righteous. Because when you think about it, if he aims at the church and successfully makes us religious without real repentance, if he leaves us self-righteous without a savior, then he's left the whole world lost in darkness. The whole world would be lost either in the darkness of their own wickedness or in the darkness of their own self-righteousness. 
Either way, a Savior hangs on Calvary's tree for nothing and no one. As one author eloquently put it, he said, Christianity is the only faith in the world that says you need to repent of doing good things for wrong motives. You need to repent of your religion. You see, we have to be willing to repent of our own wickedness and of our self-proclaimed righteousness. You see, the dangerous reality for so many in the American evangelical church in our 21st century is that we would be willing to stand up to speak against our cultural having loose moral values. We'd show up to march for the unborn. We'd, we'd even plant the sign in our lawn for the sanctity and definition of marriage, all the while our own self-righteousness is shielding us from the Savior who loves us because we don't think we need a Savior anymore to save us. We instead just need God, we think, to intervene and stop those people, those outsiders who are ruining the good world that we, the morally upright, are trying to build on our own. But Jesus' teachings arrived, and they were meant to shatter the self-righteous hearts that alienate us so far from God. Because what Jesus' teachings would do is level the playing field completely. Oh, no, Habakkuk's comment here, his complaint, is not about the outsiders. He's looking at his own people and saying, even for us, we're so wicked and broken, and God, when will you do something? You see, this is the people's common question. And remember, in this moment, he's functioning. The prophet is like a figurehead and spokesperson as he speaks to God on behalf of the people, carrying their heavy burden, it says, to God. Look at what he's asking at the onset of this book. I mean, don't you hear your own voice echoing in these requests? Where he's asking, God, don't you hear? I mean, haven't you heard yourself before saying, God, for how long? Do I have to cry out for help for my family before you actually listen? How many times do I have to ask for help in my marriage before it actually improves? Or how many times do I have to cry out for provision before you give me an opportunity to get that promotion or to find a new opportunity, a better position for employment? Oh, how long do I have to pray each day and yet still watch them suffer as it seems that you don't respond? I mean, haven't we all come to God desperate like this? Desperate to see him intervene and move, and simultaneously disheartened when he doesn't seem to hear or intervene. Author and speaker Christine Kane observed that there is not a person on earth that has not come to some place in their life that they think, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? Where did you go in the midst of all of this? I wasn't expecting any of this. Oh, it gets us to a place where we think, is there really a God? And if there's a God, who are you and where are you and why has my life ended up like this? Remember, our topic of discussion today is when God doesn't do things our way or in our timing. And the prophet's carrying here frustration as he's seen injustice and yet he doesn't seem to find God doing anything about it. And it's a common question, isn't it? As we look around, not just as the outsiders, but as we look around, even in the brokenness within the church, within Christendom, we look at sometimes the brokenness within our own homes and families, and we're asking for God to intervene. This is the people's common question. But the second thing to notice is the bulk of what we'll discuss today, and that's God's astounding answer. Because it's recorded for you quite clearly, where he says in verse 5, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told to you. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard whole sermon series preached on this one verse that are about incredibly positive things. Like if you only knew the good things God had in store for you, you would be so amazed. You'd find them to be so beyond belief. But the very next verse will make it very clear to us that God is doing something slightly different than that. And that maybe we're misreading what he's saying here. In fact, in verse 5 where it says, be utterly astounded, your Bible might render it as be amazed. But the Hebrew word that's used here means to be stunned or dumbfounded. And the, the prophet records this moment where God speaks to him, and he records that Hebrew word twice in a row, where God says, you'll be stunned, so stunned. You're going to be dumbfounded, completely dumbfounded. God is saying that there's going to be a shock here that's going to happen. That, that He's telling him, you might want to sit down for this, Habakkuk, before I tell you. Because yes, I see injustice and rebellion in my people. And yes, I'm going to do something about it. But what I'm going to do is bring an even more rebellious and an even more wicked people here to overthrow you and your people, to humble them. And to take them into captivity then so that you will once and for all turn away from your wickedness and turn back to me. Look again in your Bible at verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. Be stunned. Be dumbfounded at what you'll see. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told to you. For I indeed am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful, God says. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. Oh, they scoff at the kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. He says, this is what they will do, and all the while, they will assume that it is they themselves or their false gods that will actually give them this victory. Oh, do you see here God's astounding answer? God tells him, I'm going to use this godless people whose wickedness and violence are completely notorious. Look at the pages of history. What they say about the Chaldeans who are the seeds of the Babylonian Empire, the things that they did were atrocious to other humans. Oh, they're going to come, though, and suppress the people of God that they might be humbled and turn their hearts away from their wickedness and to turn their hearts back to God. Remember, please, where we began this morning with the prophet functioning, remember, as this spokesman and figurehead for his people asking God, do you even see this God? And will you do anything about it? Oh, this is God's response. And he's responding, saying, I'm actually already doing something about it. I'm allowing this nation, yes, a pagan nation, to grow in power so that they can come to shake God's people out of their apathy and rebellion. You see, as it turns out, God was even more concerned than Habakkuk was about the injustice and rebellion that he saw amongst his people. And I say that he was more concerned because God was willing to do far more and to go to far greater lengths than Habakkuk even thought was reasonable. 
in order to bring the hearts of his people back to himself. As I heard one person refer to it, he said that this is a moment where God will use them, the Chaldeans, the seedlings of the Babylonian Empire. He will use them as a scalpel to remove the cancer from within his people that was so plaguing and polluting them. You see, by judging them in this way, God is giving a future generation a fighting chance at life in a broken world where they still choose to walk by faith with their God rather than to continue to self-destruct as they turn on each other and face grave judgment from God in eternity because of it. God's answer here was astounding because God didn't reply and say, you know what you guys need to fix this? You need a season of fruitfulness and blessing that so many of us might suggest. He does not promise a stretch of relaxation so that they could just shift their priorities a bit, maybe as we would have wished. Nor does he offer a new godly leader so that they could be corrected and have a change in direction as we would probably pray for in the midst of something like this. Ironically, what people did not need was just a new godly leader in this situation. They had just had one, their prior king, Josiah. However, his leadership had no lasting impact on the hearts of his people because you cannot legislate holiness. You cannot make laws that reform the hearts. Maybe they will help to curtail the behavior, but it cannot change the heart of an individual. Laws expose the heart of an individual. God alone changes it. That's true of the law of God, too. You see, even under Josiah's leadership, when he took away the high places of worship to pagan gods, and when he called people to reform and repentance before God, once Josiah was gone, people instantly turned their back again in rebellion against God. And there may, in, a, in an election year and cycle, there may be a word here for us, a word of encouragement for us to not be so foolish as to think while ignoring history that if we could only get our man in office, then everything would change in the heart of a nation. All the hearts of the people would be renewed into right standing with God as, as we would just repent together alongside of him. The truth is we cannot legislate holiness, which is not to say that having a good and right godly leader does not matter. I'm not saying that at all. I do think it matters, but we cannot begin to think or assume that it matters most and that it can save a nation because even under the wonderful King Josiah, whose heart was right before God and called others into the same heart-repentant posture before God, even under his leadership, the people rebelled and went their own way. God would not give them a season of leisure, nor even a new charismatic or even a godly leader. God would give them over into a brutal stretch of time that would include grave hardship and adversity so that God's people would cease from their evil and self-destructive behavior. And next week what we'll see is that Habakkuk really chokes on this response from God. This is unthinkable for him. The reason it's unthinkable is because the Chaldeans are even worse, even more wicked, even more deserving of God's judgment than his own people were. But this moment leaves us with a clear understanding that God was more interested in and concerned about their hearts than he was in their circumstances. Can I say that again? I think the way that God responds here makes it clear that God's more concerned with our hearts than he is with our circumstances. In fact, he's willing to leave them in difficult circumstances in order to recapture their hearts 
and in doing so, rescue them from greater future pain. You see, today we're discussing when God doesn't do things in our way or in our timing, and it's a a question that we wrestle with, all of us do. But God's response sometimes is not what we had hoped for or anticipated. It's astounding. You know, most scholars and commentators estimate that it would be somewhere around four decades before the Babylonian Empire would actually arrive after Habakkuk would utter these words and record this little book. And that the arrival of the Babylonians would come after the prophet Jeremiah, who's a contemporary of Habakkuk, had faithfully appealed to the people of God to repent, lest just judgment come upon them in the form of a foreign nation, which they refused to do. In fact, your Bible tells you that there were other prophets who rose during this time who were false prophets, who rose up telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear, that it's all good, that God's not asking for repentance. He's promising blessing on you, but blessing would not be what they would experience at all. It'd be Jeremiah himself from within that future season of captivity that the prophet Jeremiah would write in his book of lament, his book of heartache, of weeping, In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 through 33, the prophet would write this. He would say, For the Lord will not cast us off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. I like how the ESV renders that last verse. For he does not afflict from his heart, or grieve the children of men. If we're honest, we'd probably still say today that God's answer, it still astounds us. That he would allow his people to be treated this way. That he'd allow them to have a long season of lament before they'd repent. Craig Rochelle in his book, Hope in the Dark, about the book of Habakkuk, he writes that the more I've lived life and the more I've sought to know and understand God, the more I'm certain that doubts are essential to our maturity as believers. If we want a stronger faith, then we might be wise to allow our doubts to stand as we work through them instead of trying to chop them out of the way. Judging from what I see in Scripture, I'm convinced that God honors those seekers who sincerely look for the truth just like that little boy's father who wanted to believe so badly that he asked God to help him overcome his unbelief. You remember that story, don't you? where there's a father who brings his child to Jesus, and he's begging him to rescue his son from the evil that plagued him. And then Jesus responds and says, everything is possible for him who believes. That's when we picture the father beginning to physically show signs of just his weariness. It's when we assume that we hear his voice carrying with it a lot of emotion as we simply hear the words come out, I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. But remember, please, in that moment that Jesus responds and heals the boy immediately, which apparently shows us something. It shows us that that what faith is, is what's seen in that very moment. A faith that, yes, might be quality-wise less than perfect. Quantity-wise, it might be small, but the object of his faith is what mattered, not the size, the measure of it, nor really the quality of it. It's because he looked at Jesus and says, I believe, but I need you to help me. My friends, your faith may be imperfect. What matters is the object of your faith, not its quantity or quality. 
Say to Jesus today what the man said. Jesus, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Because so many of us are left with a backup shoulder to shoulder with him, looking at God saying, I'm looking for you to intervene. And if I can understand you right, it seems that the things that you're doing is not how I would do it or in the timing that I would, that's for sure. But are you willing to trust your unknown future into the hands of your known God, even when it's painful and even if things are beyond your comprehension? Because this is the tension it leaves us in. And that's the third thing the tension and choice it leaves us with. You see, when God doesn't do things our way or in our timing, it leaves all of us in a tension and choice of what we'll do about it. I mean, have you ever stopped just to even ask yourself or consider, why does injustice, because that's what this is really about, is he carries injustice to God saying, why aren't you seeing this or doing anything about it? Why does injustice bother us so much? So much? Why do we, even as children, complain about things not being fair? Maybe that's just my kids. I mean, really think about it, though. Why as an adult, why does injustice grind on you? Why does it so frustrate you? You know, there are many reasons why I believe that God exists. One of them is because of what, what some people refer to as a moral law's existence in the hearts of humanity. I think it's actually what we're being confronted with here when Habakkuk becomes a representative of humanity going before God and saying, the injustice I'm seeing, why aren't you doing anything about it? You see, he's representing humanity's great desire for justice. And there is no reason why humanity would agree on on some things that are right and other things that all of humanity would classify as wrong or evil, and that humanity would agree that justice is a good thing that should be pursued and even mandated by those in authority. There's a reason a strong desire for justice is present in humanity's hearts, but it cannot, the reason for it cannot be answered from an evolutionary theory that's void of God. If we just evolved to get here, then we we cannot answer why we have this common moral understanding. Think about it. Across the board, in every culture and context, humanity agrees that justice matters. It's why it's not just in the first world cultures and societies that we demand justice. It's why tribal groups are killing people to preserve justice. It's why even in those groups, there are laws and repercussions that exist for injustice. Oh, how and why, though, do people all around the world hold the concept and even the desire for justice so tightly? The only way that we can explain it, this internal hard wiring that people across the globe are born with, the only way we explain it is that we were made in the image of a God who is just, and therefore our very hearts long for justice because we share in his heart's desire. Now, please hear me say that there's a difference between our opinions at times of justice or what's fair and what God actually views as right and just. Think of the story Jesus told of that landowner who looked for a bunch of servants to come and work in his field. And he approached some and they started first thing in the morning. Then others started later in the day. And then some started with like an hour left before the sun would come down. And then he took those first who had worked the least amount of time, only an hour, And he gave to them a denarii. It's a day's wage is what he paid him, even though they worked just a fraction of the day. And you might remember in Jesus' little story that the people who had been there for a longer period of time, oh, they got real excited. 
I mean, if this landowner paid that guy that much for as little as he did, then surely I'll receive way more than that because that's just what's right and fair. But then Jesus' story goes on to tell you just how disappointed and frustrated they were because they would receive the same payment even though they worked much harder and much longer than those individuals did. Oh, but it didn't unearth an injustice. What it did was expose their own greed and jealousy. He had done nothing wrong because he still paid them what was a fair wage that they had agreed to. It's just that he also blessed other people in their, in their opinion or perspective even more than he had cared for them. You see, it didn't make the landowner unjust or even unfair, but it did expose the expectations and jealousy that the people had housed in their hearts. You see, my friends, God's less concerned about our perception of fairness as he is with his own desire for perfect justice. After all, it's not fair that a righteous person would die for the unrighteous. It's not fair we'd all agree that Jesus would suffer because of my sin. God's desire, though, was not about fairness. It was about justice and love. So Christ was willing to suffer the just, as the Bible says, for the unjust. To bring about the justice of God because of our rebellion against him, while still making a way for the enemies of God to be made sons of God again, all because the son would be treated as an enemy, so that we, the rebellious ones against God, could be accepted again, received as sons. Please hear me, justice says that there needs to be punishment and judgment. Fairness says, I'm the one who deserves it. But the gospel says that God loves me enough to place himself under the sword of divine justice in order to give his own life for me that I could go free. You see, so much of the time we don't understand what God's doing and and it boils down to fairness versus justice. Is this fair if they're more wicked than we are that God would use them to correct and to judge and bring justice over our wickedness? I think it's actually something that I first came across in reading from Timothy Keller where he just pointed out something very simple where he challenged the reader that if you have a God who is so great in your mind for you to be angry at him for not intervening to stop what's happening in your life, then shouldn't you also have the humility to agree and to accept that he also is simultaneously so much more wise than you are and may have reason for allowing it that's beyond your understanding or ability to comprehend. If God is so great in my mind that I'm angry that he doesn't use his power to intervene, then shouldn't I also say he's that great and he must also have incredible infinite wisdom and know far more than me? And shouldn't I be willing to trust him? In the book, Hope in the Dark, about Habakkuk, the author comments that God, the author comments saying, God, why aren't you doing something? It might be the question that cuts to the hearts of our innermost doubts. Basically, we're asking God to reconcile what we believe with what we actually see right in front of us. My friends, it's us asking, how can God be good when life is not Habakkuk runs to God in this moment, asking him, please help me understand the enormity of the gap between what he believed and what he saw all around him. And maybe that's where you are today, where you carry a heavy heart in today, saying, God, help me to understand the gap between what I believe to be true about you, but what I'm seeing and experiencing and having to walk through 
in life in a broken and hard world. You know, so often for me, I think that I have to understand in order for me to trust. But the truth is that often when I feel that I have an understanding of what God's doing in my life, it doesn't cause me to trust him. It seems to be the beginning of my argument with him. That like, oh, well, now I see what you're doing, but let me tell you what you could be doing. Let me remind you of the better way to do it. We can't be so foolish as to equate trusting God to understanding our circumstances. Can I remind you of of the wonderful, famous old Christian woman, Corrie ten Boom, the, the daughter of a Dutch watchmaker, along with her family who opened their home to Jews who were hiding from Nazi pursuit. Corrie, alongside of her sister Betsy and her father, would all be arrested by the Nazis and placed into a concentration camp to live shoulder to shoulder amongst those that they looked to help. Corey would even stand trial for both her aiding in Jewish individuals who were in hiding and for serving mentally disabled adults whom Hitler's Europe was trying to annihilate and eradicate from within society. It would be just 10 days in a concentration camp before Corey's own father would pass. Oh, it would be much longer, though, that Corey would have to watch her own sister, Betsy, who'd waste away until she too would die in the hands of the Nazis. But Corey's faith would remain through that experience, and she would write in her books saying this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You see, Corey would argue that to trust God when we didn't understand what, we, what he was doing was to finally treat God as God. Can I say that again? She would argue that to trust God when we don't understand what God is doing is to finally treat God as God. What do we do when God doesn't do things our way or in our timing? Because we're left in this tension and with a choice of what we'll do. I think what we're supposed to do is look to God's past faithfulness to produce in us a present faith that sticks with it, that stays with him. You know, I have to tell you that Really, the most frightening realization I think I've come to as an adult is the realization that I'm not in control. Like, it's a little bit unnerving. I I mean, even even the situations in my life that I think that I'm in control, it's really just a facade. I want to think I have a handle on things, but the truth is I can't. I can't control my health as much as I'd like to think that I can. I can't control the well-being of my family as much as I'd like to think that I do. I can't control the driver in the car next to me as I'm driving on the highway any more than I can control the economy and the housing market and what it will do in the future and the ride it will undoubtedly take me on. I can't control a 401k retirement plan. I can put money in it, but there's no guarantee at the end of the road that there will be any left in it. I can't, I can't control at all the decisions that my children will make, which keeps me up at night. You see, it's a scary realization to come to when you realize that you're not in control, that things are absolutely out of your control. But the greatest news I think that we have in moments in life like that as followers of Jesus is that we have a God that isn't like us, that he doesn't share our limitations. But, 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 he doesn't always do things quite the way we would hope that he would. He doesn't always do things quite the way that we would choose for him to do it if we were seated in his spot. And this is where you find Habakkuk. 
See, your Bible makes it very clear that the beauty and promise to you in following Jesus is not that everything starts going your way. It's that you can experience hope and peace because we have a God whose ways are better than ours. You know, we'd all agree that God's ways are undoubtedly different from the way that we do things. But I'd like to remind you today to see and believe with an eye of faith that there are His ways, the way that he does things, are also simultaneously not just different, but far better than the way that we would. In fact, Scripture says they are higher than. In fact, allow me to read to you, please, from Isaiah chapter 55. Where in Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says, For my thoughts, God speaking to his children, are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or excuse me, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can I tell you a little bit about the context of this amazing statement God makes about himself here in Isaiah 55? It's about 100 years before Habakkuk would arrive. And Isaiah is there warning a nation of the looming judgment and destruction that would come if they would not repent and turn back to God. Isaiah is calling his present generation to repentance, but then he begins to prophetically address the future of the nation that would suffer under Babylonian rule. And Isaiah calls on them to trust in God's faithfulness and his deliverance of his people. And he promises that the nation will be delivered eventually after going into captivity, which Habakkuk will see. But it will be after Habakkuk's life that they will, according to historians, it's proven to us, they will emerge from captivity just as Isaiah promised. But there would be a future and greater deliverance that Isaiah would begin to prophetically promise that God would provide. He will begin to describe Jesus as Savior who would come 700 years later to rescue not just the nation from the Babylonians, but humanity from our evil oppressor from Satan and sin and sickness and suffering and death. See, Isaiah writes about not just the promise of deliverance, but he also gives a detailed description of the means of deliverance and forgiveness that's recorded in Isaiah chapter 53 and 54. He even describes the reach and impact of that deliverance, that it's not just for the people of God, but every nation can experience that deliverance that Jesus offers. But then right in the middle of that beautiful prophetic writing, we find this amazing pronouncement from God where this is what he says to us. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my way or your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's statement here, it, it informs us of at least two things. The first is the, the looming global impact of the grace that would come in Jesus. That God was promising to do something that no one had foreseen or expected. Through suffering, Jesus would endure for us as our substitute. God would offer humanity a pardon for the punishment that we deserve for our sins. God is saying here that my ways are so much higher than yours. I'm not like you. My plans are far greater than yours. Because I will do the unthinkable. I, the king of heaven, will become the substitute for sinful man. I'm going to extend grace to you. You see, one of the things this communicates is this looming global impact of grace that was soon to come. But what God says to Isaiah here also presents a personal truth that you and I ought to believe and embrace this morning. And that's that 
Although things may not be going according to your plan, please remember today that God says, my thoughts are nothing like yours. And my ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. Can I close this morning by just pushing on you, just pushing and encouraging you to consider what God says through the prophet Isaiah here, just a a short length of time before Habakkuk would arrive. He's pushing on you to remember that his way is often not your way. I mean, have you ever been on an airplane where you know the destination that you're headed to? In fact, you've even technically arrived there, but you're yet to touch down. And because of weather or air traffic issues, they put you into a holding pattern where there you go starting to circle the airport, knowing that it's not a question of if you'll arrive there. Now it becomes just a question of when. Because once the air traffic clears or once the weather pattern shifts, then you're able to touch down. But there's tension in the waiting. And at times, I think this is how God works in our lives. It's in fact exactly how God worked in the life of King David. Think back to his story. Sure, David believed that he could trust God's plan and his promise that he would be king. But the question quickly became... But when will it happen? And why is it taking so long? You see, the promise had been made to David through the prophet Samuel that he would be king over all Israel. And that promise was delivered when he was just a preteen. But by the time he's anointed king, your Bible says he's 30 years old. Some scholars estimate that it was 17 years of waiting. And it wasn't easy waiting, not at all. Oh, but if you would have asked about David, if you would have asked him, what's your plan? If this is what God's going to do and what God has promised to do, well, then he would have said, well, God's going to lead me by the hand straight to the throne as a teenager. Well, his plan later is is willing to change and morph a bit, where he marries the king's daughter, and he's assuming I'm just going to co-reign with the king's son, Jonathan. But for him to be king, David would first suffer loss with his wife being taken away from him. He'd live on the run, fleeing for his life, and his reputation would be dragged through the dirt, all the while asking God why. Before David takes the throne, Jonathan will die. And some of David's other friends are murdered in a power struggle. He moves from his beautiful home into a small dark cave. And then all of a sudden to ice the cake, he has a bunch of disgruntled people who decide to join him and move in and share the cave with him. This isn't what David signed up for. And haven't you felt that way? Where you, you have a plan and you might even inform God about your great scheme only to have God go about things in a seemingly unnecessarily difficult way. Oh, it's not only David, but think about Joseph who'd face injustice and be betrayed, hated without a cause, wrongfully imprisoned, and yet through that process, God uses him to save his whole family and all of Israel. And at the end of his story, do you remember what he says in Genesis chapter 50, where he says, but as for you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph would have wanted it any other way, but look at what God did by doing things his way rather than Joseph's. We'd have to agree that God's ways are often not our own. But the other thing that Isaiah is telling you here is really that God's timing is also not your own. Sure, David was made king over all of Israel. Sure, God's promise was fulfilled to David, but it would take over 15 years. For up to David, he would have been anointed king and crowned king on the very same day. Or maybe give it a few years so he grew some facial hair and felt a little more confident. But like, why wait 15 years? And haven't you felt this way? When you believe that God will intervene and make things right, that he's going to work things out, but you wonder why he seems to unnecessarily wait so very long. You see, we live often in the tension of waiting that God seems to require from us. Oh, sure, we begin in confidence like the plane in a holding pattern, 
knowing that I'll get there, it's just a question of when, but soon our confidence, it wavers and is replaced by worry. And for me, often my worry is really nothing more than unbelief in disguise. You see, because I worry when I realize that I'm not in control, but I ought to cease from worry when I remember who is in control and that he's good. Remember, please, that even Jesus did not have his prayers answered in the way or in the time that he had hoped for. He asked three times, if there's any other way, take this cup from before me. But nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. And Jesus went to the cross. God says, my thoughts are nothing like yours, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Oh, his way, it's often not your way. His timing is often not your timing. But even more important than than that for you to understand is to remember today, it's because they are high above ours. It's because they're better than ours. Because he's God who's not just powerful, but he's wise. Let me remind you one last thing that I believe is true about the way that God works in our lives, that that's that God sees as much value in the waiting as he does in the arriving. You see, for God, the, the journey is as important as the destination. For me, I'm like a kid in the back seat. I just want to get there. But God sees value in the process of getting me there because the journey makes the man, because the journey requires faith, because the journey shapes intimacy in the heart. Think again about David. While a shepherd, he would kill a lion and a bear, and it would prepare him for Goliath. While playing a harp in the king's court, he would see how things were run in the palace and in the kingdom. While on the run for 10 years, he'd learn to trust God with his own life and for his own provision so that he could in the future trust God with the provision and care for a nation. He was anointed as an immature teenager. He was crowned as a fearless warrior and leader. The process to get them was get him there was a long journey. But we look back now and recognize that God knew what he was doing. That the journey was invaluable, that the process was something he could not have done without. Please hear me remind you today that the beauty and promise to you in following Jesus is not that everything immediately starts going our way. It's that we can experience hope and peace because we have a God who loves us and whose way is better than ours. Your walk of faith and mine must involve not just the observation that God's ways are clearly different. It must also involve the faith to believe that God's ways are higher than, greater than mine. You know, if you're following along with our Bible reading plan together as a church, this last week you would have stumbled across Psalm 18. It's it's a psalm that David wrote, it says, on the day that he was delivered from all of his enemies. Many scholars believe it's It's maybe even a psalm that he wrote on his coronation day. And that psalm includes this statement in Psalm 18, verse 30. He says, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. As for God, think of all that he went through. Think of all that he lost. Think of all that he suffered. As for God, his way is perfect. And as for my way, he made it perfect too. You know, it's quite possible that on this side of heaven, I will not see all that God is doing in my life and have understanding for why or why not he's done things his way and not mine. 
But I think that one day in heaven, I'll see things from his perspective. And then I'll do what scripture tells me, that I'll sing with the rest of heaven the song of Moses, where we sing, just, just and true are all of your judgments, or in other words, fair and right, O God, is all that you do. Faith sings that today. Faith sings it today. Faith sings it in waiting. Faith echoes David and says, as for your ways, they're perfect. You know, I found that when I don't have an answer for the what that God is doing in my life, that I find myself questioning the who, questioning who is he to allow this? What kind of a good God would allow this to happen to me? However, when I don't have an answer to the what, I'm really invited in faith back to the who, who has already proven his great love and wisdom time and time again. He most clearly demonstrated it, both his love and his foreknowledge, his wisdom, when he entered into human flesh to bleed and die on a cross. Dwayne R. Young, in his book entitled Why, A Study in Habakkuk, he writes, it was through the word of God that I have found answers. In fact, I found the answer in the person of Jesus Christ. I have found comfort in knowing that one day the questions will all be answered or they will simply no longer matter. My prayer is that you find that same comfort knowing that the author and finisher of your faith holds what you need because he is the answer. So Jesus, today we are challenged to be a, per a people of faith even in the midst of uncertainty. God, we look around at a broken world. We look even in our own lives and see brokenness. And God, we wish that you would intervene in our way and in our time. But God, we're willing to trust that you have reasons for doing things the way that you do. And God, in faith today, we want to echo David and say, as for God, his way is perfect. But God, like Habakkuk, it's difficult. Because sometimes we wish that you do things a different way. But God, today I pray that we would have a refreshed view and mentality, remembering that your way is planned in wisdom and bathed in love. That nothing takes you by surprise and that you do love us and have a great plan not just for us, but for all of creation. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your wisdom, and thank you for your love. And Father, I pray especially for those today who came in wrestling with this very question of, God, why don't you do it my way and in my time? I pray today that they would hear in Habakkuk's tension an appeal for their faith. And they right now would bring those things to you as we sing and worship you and that you would meet them in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.